Welcome to Navigating UK Merger Control, a podcast from DLA Piper. This podcast is aimed at those encountering the UK merger regime for the first time, or becoming reacquainted with it. The UK regime has a number of key differences to the US and European regimes, which listeners may be used to. Across the series, we'll be joined by some special guests, including a present and a former regulator, an economist and even a lobbyist, who will help us to unpick the UK system, set out what makes it tick, and show you what to expect. My name is Matt Evans, and I'm a partner in the firm's competition practice. I'm delighted to be co-hosting this podcast series alongside my colleagues in the DLA UK competition team. In this episode, the second of the series, we will be providing an overview of two idiosyncratic features of the UK system, mergers intelligence, and so-called hold-separate orders, officially known as Initial Enforcement Orders, or IEOs. We'll be joined by a special guest, Eleni Gouliou. Eleni is Director of Mergers at the Competition and Markets Authority, handling Phase 1 and Phase 2 mergers. She was previously a case handler at the European Commission, specialising in telecoms mergers. Eleni has been involved in many complex mergers, both for competition authorities and during her time in private practice. As well as leading various merger inquiries, she currently heads the Competition and Markets Authority's Mergers Intelligence Committee, whose work is one of the things we're going to discuss today. Eleni will be speaking with Richard Jenkinson, a senior associate in the firm's London office. Richard. Well, uh, first of all, thank you very much, Eleni, for uh, joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very excited to be speaking in this podcast. We're going to be discussing in this episode the CMA's merger intelligence function and its hold separate so-called initial enforcement order system in this episode. Could we start by having you uh, briefly explain for us and our audience uh, what these things are and why they're necessary in the UK system? As a background, the UK has a voluntary notification system for mergers. This means that unlike other jurisdictions like the European Union or the US, companies are not required to file a merger notice in the UK before they complete a transaction. At the same time, the CMA has a statutory duty to refer for an in-depth or phase two investigation any relevant merger where it believes that the merger may result or has resulted in a substantial lessening of competition in the UK market. So to fulfill this duty, the CMA has several powers. It has the power to gather information on relevant mergers, but also the power to call in mergers that were not notified by the parties to the CMA, and also to impose these initial enforcement orders to hold the company separate while the CMA is investigating. The mergers intelligence function is based on that system. The team is responsible for monitoring the market on a daily basis and collecting information on transactions that haven't been notified to the CMA and may require investigation under UK merger control. It is essential for the UK system to operate to have a mergers intelligence to allow the CMA to review mergers within the time frame of uh, after their completion. That time frame is limited to four months. So it's quite important that we are proactive in scanning the market. Turning to IEOs, they are designed to preserve the pre-merger status quo while the CMA is investigating a completed merger. 
For example, if the CMA decides to call in a merger that is completed, it's very likely that we will impose an interim order to hold the company separate while we're investigating. I mean, to clarify, the need for an IO depends on the circumstances of the case, but usually we will balance the need to avoid preemptive actions against the burdens of the IO on the merging parties. So starting with merger intelligence. So as you say, the CMA monitors the market in order to decide which cases it may need to uh, pull in and uh, take a look at, um, see whether they are responsible for a loss of competition. Where does the CMA get that intelligence from? We gather information from a very wide variety of sources. The primary one is press resources, wire services for announcements of transactions, trade press, EU and UK case precedent, companies house, the company's own websites and also various databases. Other sources could be if we've been looking at a market for different reasons, we may become aware of a merger that takes place in that sector. Other, you know, CMA functions might alert us to a possible merger, government departments, other uh, regulators might also inform us and, you know, other public bodies too. There are two other sources. One is briefing papers that are proactively submitted by the parties. Often parties want to have, you know, an understanding of whether the CMA is likely to call in a case and they proactively submit a briefing paper to facilitate our review. And the second one could be complaints from third parties that raise a concern in relation to a merger. And you mentioned that there was a four-month time period in which the CMA has to um, investigate completed mergers. Now, one thing that um, our audience might be thinking would be, well, what if we just complete and then keep quiet about it and um, ultimately win the game of um, hide-and-seek with the uh, Merger Intelligence Committee of the CMA? But it doesn't work like that, does it? You have to be able to find it. Yeah, I'm afraid that's not how the four-month clock starts. So the four-month clock starts from the time that the merger is completed and also made sufficiently public. So the material facts about the transaction, for example, the parties to the transaction and when the transaction took place, need to be sufficiently public in a relatively prominent way so that the CMA is enabled to find it. So, yeah, it is quite a risky proposition if the parties don't make it sufficiently public because then the four-month clock does not start and that gives the CMA the power to investigate once uh, we find out. And I suppose there's a bit of a balancing act there, isn't there, for merging parties. On the one hand, you don't want your um, merger to be announced as an incredibly uh, terrible thing for the market. But on the other hand, you don't want it to be so anodyne that nobody is going to report it and there's no evidence that uh, anybody noticed that it happened in the first place. But press articles aside, what does a potentially interesting merger look like to the CMA, one where you might want to start asking further questions? There are several factors that we take into consideration. The first one is, what is the merger? What are the elements of the transaction? Why did it take place? What, you know, what is the rationale behind it? Is there something, for example, in the deal value that may raise questions about possible sort of anti-competitive effects hiding behind the rationale? 
the second one would be, you know, again, the, the parties, uh, if the acquirer is known to be a dominant uh, company or a gatekeeper, an entity with significant power, if the target is one of few competitors in the market or is, is known to be a maverick, a challenger to that acquirer that may raise concerns. Also the market, what sector are we operating in? Is it a very concentrated market? Is it a market with several players? Is it a market with a lot of innovation? These are thoughts that we would explore. If we have received a complaint, we would also consider what is the complainant telling us? What are their concerns? Do we think these concerns are substantiated, sufficiently reasoned, etc.? And you look at an awful lot of cases through uh, merger intelligence. I think we've seen published sources saying it's something like over 800 mergers per year, which is about 15 cases for every actual merger filing made. But those aren't all chased up on. You have to find an issue first. And what happens if you um, identify an issue? Last year, I think we looked at over 800 merger. And we called in 14 of them. And out of these 14, three mergers were referred to phase two. So it is a very low subset of the cases that we look at that we actually call in. Now, if we look at a merger and we identify an issue or a potential issue, we would probably contact the parties for more information just to understand a little bit more how the market operates, what their activities are, etc. If after obtaining more information, we think that the merger raises sufficient competition concerns that would merit a call-in, then we would let the parties know and we would either send them an inquiry letter that calls the case in and starts the pre-notification process or if the merger is not completed, we would ask them if they want to submit a merger filing instead. And then the process starts again, similarly, but through a merger filing. I just wanted to say also that our threshold for calling in a merger is that we have a reasonable likelihood that the phase one legal standard is met. And the phase one legal standard is reasonable likelihood that there is a substantial lessening of competition. So it is a reasonable likelihood over reasonable likelihood. That means that the test for calling in a merger is relatively low. Yeah. And at the same time, it's not just everything that you might potentially have jurisdiction over. We mentioned briefing papers a couple of times in our conversation already. Now, the DLA Piper team submits these quite regularly. You have a read of them. Sometimes you ask us questions, um, sometimes you don't. But this isn't quite the same as a merger filing, is it? No, it's not. They're quite different and they have different purposes. So a merger filing starts when the parties submit a draft merger notice to the CMA case team. And it's a statutory process that commences we know once the merger filing is complete, you know, the a phase one investigation. So it's a formal process that will lead to a decision that's published. And from a timing perspective, you will have a pre-notification period and then a 40 working day phase one review that will lead to either a clearance or a reference to phase two. A briefing is something much shorter and it doesn't trigger a formal notification, a formal review, unless we decide to call in a case. A briefing paper is maximum five pages. It's addressed to 
the merger's intelligence team, and it contains some basic information about the merger. It allows the parties to explain why, in their view, the merger does not raise any competition concerns. For example, if a company thinks that the merger does not meet the statutory thresholds or that the merger doesn't raise any overlaps, then they would submit a briefing paper to explain to the CMA, you know, what the market looks like, you know, what the overlaps are or are not. And that allows the CMA to review this deal. And briefing papers are, I suppose they are, a tiny fraction of the uh, amount of work that uh, goes into a merger notice. So a briefing paper, I think the CMA won't accept briefing papers that are much longer than uh, four or five pages. And you compare that to, say, a merger notice, which can be hundreds and hundreds of pages long. That's right. I mean, a merger notice doesn't have to be hundreds of pages, but it is significantly more substantial work than a briefing paper. I think we have a threshold of five pages for a briefing paper, and our, you know, informal guidance to merging parties and to law firms is that if you can't explain why there is no competition concern in five pages, you know, not including any annexes with market shares, etc., then that may mean that the merger is too complicated to go down the briefing paper route. But a lot of mergers go through that route and parties find it useful In the last years, we've seen a significant increase of the use of briefing papers by law firms and their emerging parties. So we had 63 in 2019-20, 82 in 2020-2021. And I think last year we had 174, so a, a very significant increase. In part, I think that will be Brexit related, where people are making a notification to the European Union and then making a briefing paper to the CMA to explain why they're not also filing in the UK. Is that accurate? I think for some of them, yes, that's true. I think it's also the advisors are increasingly familiar with how the system works and they find that the the comfort that the briefing paper provides is a good middle ground between a full notification and doing nothing. But the Merger Intelligence Committee having no further questions isn't conclusive, is it? That's right. Where the CMA has no further questions, we will send an email to the parties and we will explain that at that current stage of the investigation and based on the information that we have received, the CMA does not intend to send further requests for information. It does not preclude the CMA to ask further questions at a later stage or even open a phase one investigation at any points within the four-month clock from completion that we were discussing. And that particularly can happen if new information comes to light from the markets or from a complainant. In practice, these occurrences are quite rare. I think there's been only a handful of cases in the last three or four years, you know, I think possibly three cases where uh, we had sent no further questions email and then found additional information that made us change our change our mind. So while it is technically true that we can reopen the case and consider whether it merits an investigation, it is in practice quite um, a strong guidance for parties. Maybe if I just jump in, I, I think that's a really important point you flagged there, Eleni. If our clients want legal certainty, they need to go down the merger notice formal notification route. If they want an indication and some level of comfort, then they get this no further questions email. That's not a 
a decision. That's not an appealable statement should the CMA subsequently change its mind. But certainly we see that some clients like to have that comfort and it may dictate whether they actually close the deal or not. Yes, that's right. And I think in practice, it is quite exceptional that we would reopen the case if we have sent no further questions, but we can't rule it out that more information might come to light, that somebody may complain with a substantiated complaint or that there's a development in the market, but it is quite exceptional. Thank you. And um, moving from, I suppose, non-binding comfort to uh, binding uh, discomfort, um, we should probably talk about initial enforcement orders and um, hold separates. Now, we've already heard Matt in the previous episode with uh, Joel Bamford mentioning the issues which can arise from having to make sure the two businesses are separately managed where the CMA is part of its post-completion review holds businesses separate. But what we didn't really hear from Joel was why the CMA does this. And we were wondering if you could explain this a bit further. Yes, I think, again, this comes back to the voluntary regime and the fact that the parties are free to complete a merger. If the CMA reviews a merger that is completed, then it needs to have the tools to ensure that both the acquirer and the target are kept separate, run as independent businesses, and also are both kept viable in case there's a need for a remedy down the line or an, you know, or an, an unwinding. Because effectively, what you have with the UK system is you have a company that has already acquired the target, and therefore, without an, an interim order, by the time the CMA's investigation is finished, there may not be a target to unwind in the event of a prohibition. And another key feature of initial enforcement orders is that as well as keeping the target safe, they also uh, limit what the acquirer group can do with its own business. Yeah, that's right. The initial enforcement order captures both companies and it is there to ensure that both companies are run separately and both are stay viable. The reason for that is that we cannot preempt what the right remedy will be. And, you know, sometimes also on the parties initiative, it may be that the, the acquirer prefers to, to divest an entity that is part of the acquirer's business rather than the target business. And we very often find that as soon as you have two businesses being held separately, you need to go in and make changes and you do need to make changes to the order. And there is a process which uh, allows that to happen, the derogation steps. Can you uh, briefly take us through that, please? Yes, the way that the system works is that we impose an interim order and an interim order will typically prevent the, any integration of the acquirers and the target's business and any action that impedes the ability of either business to compete or that reduces the likelihood that either business could be divested if that was required ultimately. So that is a very wide blanket order and then it is for the parties to request a derogation from that obligation to hold separate for certain matters that are not going to affect the running of the businesses or that are required in order to, you know, so, you know, for certain reasons. So if the onus falls on the parties to explain to the CMA why derogation is needed and why also the derogation will not impact 
the abilities of the businesses to compete or the viability of the businesses. And I think the balance of that is that the CMA, especially at that early stage of the investigation, but also generally, is not experienced in running these businesses in that sector. So it needs the parties to give it all the evidence that the CMA requires you know, to make an assessment as to whether the derogation is merited and whether the derogation has a risk of leading to preemptive action. Yes, and at this point, it's very commonplace in discussions between advisors and the CMA for um, advisors to note that the whole separate process can be extremely expensive for the merging parties and um, result in a lot of extra legal costs. In fact, we tend to have a separate team dealing solely with the whole separates. But I imagine there's a similar burden for the uh, the CMA as well in handling that process and um, getting up to speed with how the business operates. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the interim order, the interim enforcement orders process is quite burdensome, both for the CMA and we fully appreciate that it's burdensome for the parties. It is essential in order to ensure that the the CMA has the tool at its disposal to have an effective enforcement down the line, which includes prohibition and unwinding in completed cases. I mean, without interim enforcement orders, the voluntary regime would simply not work. Now, there are ways to minimize the burden or to facilitate the burden on the parties. For example, if the parties with their advisors think about what derogations they will need early on and come to the CMA with all the, the, the relevant evidence up front, that can facilitate the process and speed things up. I mean, another point is that it is the party's decision to complete a merger or not. And sometimes that is dictated by the commercial negotiations and who carries the risk of a transaction. But ultimately, the decision to complete a merger, especially if in, in the knowledge that the CMA will is investigating, should always take into account the burden of an IEO and the, you know, the subsequent derogations that will be needed. Because when things go wrong, they can really go wrong and the CMA can step in and impose eye-watering fines. Um, and just thinking about uh, the Facebook Giphy merger, there was a £50.5 million fine there. In the JD Sports uh, Foot Asylum case, there was a £4.3 million fine there for breaching the IO. These are hefty penalties. We have the power to impose a fixed penalty when the emerging parties fail to comply with an IO. And these are based on factual circumstances of a specific case as to whether a breach has occurred or not. The penalty cannot exceed 5% of the total value of the turnover of the enterprises that are owned and controlled by the acquirer. So the um, maximum amount of the penalty depends on the size of the company and its subsidiaries. As explained, it is vital to maintain the pre-merger status of competition between the parties during the CMA investigation. So we will take failures to comply very seriously and will not hesitate to impose a penalty where appropriate. For example, in the cases that you mentioned, Meta was fined 50.5 million for having significantly limited the scope of its regular updates and compliance with the IO. And its global turnover at the time was, uh, in 2020, was over 55 billion. In JD Sports and Foot Asylum, the companies were fined nearly 4.7 million for failing to have proper safeguards in place to stop information sharing and for sharing commercially sensitive information and failing to alert the CMA of such breaches. 
we investigate these breaches of our IOs quite seriously. It's fair, would you say, that um, nobody, either on the CMA side or on the um, advisor emerging party side, really likes IEOs, but as a concept, they're an inevitable side effect of a voluntary notification system. And frankly, if we didn't have them, we'd be uh, filing a lot more mergers. We like IEOs because they're the only way to allow us to ensure that potentially problematic mergers that are completed do not immediately affect competition without a remedy. I'm not really sure whether we do not like IOs or whether we do not like completed mergers that necessitate the IO. So if you have a completed merger, you need to have an IO. And I think the parties like completed mergers, but they don't like IOs. And the CMA, you know, needs IOs if it has completed mergers to review. So I think that's the balance there. Ultimately, however, I agree with you that the process of dealing with a completed merger and dealing with an IO is burdensome on everyone. It is a decision that falls on the merging parties to decide to complete a merger when the CMA may investigate or you know has decided to investigate. It is much more practical to have an anticipated acquisition where everything is still separate and the parties have not have not completed. But I also recognize that the flexibility of the UK system to allow the parties to complete has its benefits and it is for the parties to decide what is best for their transaction. My advice is that if a parties decide to complete a merger, they should anticipate an IO and the burden that this will bring and also do some advanced work on what type of derogations they will need, approach the CMA, uh, gather all the evidence, because that will help them get their derogation set up much quicker. I think that's very sound advice, Eleni, and certainly we would like to think all our clients if they have a potentially interesting deal for the CMA, but need to complete it for whatever reason, do so with their eyes open. And I think the advice about getting not only the thinking about what derogation requests they might need from the standard IEO wording, but also getting the evidence together to demonstrate why they need that to the CMA will make it marginally less painful. But as you and Richard have said, the derogation process and dealing with an IEO is a painful process for merging parties. Thank you very much, Eleni and Richard. And thanks to you for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed this second episode of DLA Piper's series, Navigating UK Merger Control. Look out for episode three, where we'll be joined by colleagues from our corporate team. We'll be discussing the impact that the UK system has on closing the deal on both private and public deals, including what the takeover code has to say about merger control conditionality.